Hey everybody, welcome to a special joint presentation from WYXR and Back to the Light. I am the host of the Back to the Light podcast, J.D. Rieger. What you are about to hear is a conversation with the great and unfortunately late Memphis music legend Howard Grimes that originally aired, if you will, on the podcast back in June of 2021. That episode and many others, by the way, can be found at backtothelight.net or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere fine podcasts are distributed. It was a tremendous honor for me to have Mr. Grimes as a guest, and I feel lucky to have been given the opportunity to pick his brain about his work with folks like Al Green, Willie Mitchell and High Rhythm, Ann Peebles, O.V. Wright, and others. So many great songs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Howard Grimes from the Back to the Light podcast here on WYXR. Mr. Grimes, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm a really, really big fan. I'm a drummer myself and actually learned playing the drums along to your record. So I just wanted to you know, just really <laughs> convey right. how much it means to me to have you here. Okay. Yes, thank you. Well, I read through your book some yesterday. And one thing I was really struck by in the early pages of it was your description of the neighborhood you grew up in, New Chicago. I was hoping you could maybe just <laughs> tell me a little bit about the scene, the clubs, the cafes, everything that was going on there when you were coming up in the late 40s and 50s? Uh, well, it was kind of, it was a poor time, actually. I didn't know anything about being poor because my granddaddy, he was a veteran, and uh, he was in World War II. His name was Winston Threats, and my mother her name was Mary Elizabeth Reitz. Well, I was the firstborn, so uh, I never knew my dad. I had never seen him. I don't know who he is. But my mother was the one who influenced me. It was the music at her time, you know. Uh, she was listening at Ray Charles and Glenn Miller. Tommy Dorsey, Jimmy Dorsey, jazz mostly. And me being the age I was, she'd be around in the kitchen or something cooking and popping, she'd be popping her fingers, you know. And I didn't know, I'd heard the beat. But she was so, you know, joyful and happy all the time. And I, Picked up from my uncles to come by the house. All these people, they were jazz lovers. You know, I hadn't, I wasn't equipped and hip to uh, jazz singers. I heard the music, but I didn't know their names. So as time grew on, passed by, uh, I started hearing. Uh, a jazz drummer was named Gene Cooper. I saw the story as Gene Cooper. And uh, it got me started. So uh, I said around about the early 50s is when everything actually fell in place, you know. Uh, I said I was about 11. 
years old. I used to come up on the corner. My uncle had a cafe, which my Aunt Les, his wife, she ran cafe. He had a pool hall next door. And uh, these cafes, it was really, the street was called Bellevue. So it was a couple of cafes. There was another one called Fat Man. So this is where I was picking up this music. I was hearing what they were playing. And I never knew uh, about records because I hadn't yet seen, you know, I knew about the 78 my, my mother had. But it was a truck used to come up. A white truck says Southern Music and used to come up and uh, had 45s. I had never seen them before, so I noticed whenever the month could go around or maybe two months, he would come up with a new record. I stand on the corner across the street and I hear his music. So I got kind of used to what was happening. And he'd bring these 45s and put them on a jukebox. So I took interest in the early music that came from Chuck Berry, Fat Domino, Little Richard, uh, Bo Diddley. All of this music was when I first was in Tice because it's what was being played on the radio. And uh, as initially I had got started, you know. Tell me a little bit about the role that your band teacher at Manassas High School, Mr. Abel, played in getting you started playing music? Well, I was I was around uh, 12, 13 years old. I started with Rufus. Actually, uh, Rufus Thomas was on WDIA, and that's the station that they had the real DJs A.C. Muha Williams, Nat D. Williams, Honey Boy, Martha Jean, and Rufus Thomas. Rufus has come on late at night, 12 o'clock. He had a show called Hoop in Harlem. And Rufus started me by, he played around in little cafes. You know, uh, we didn't play in very many of them, but we played in the neighborhood cafe. We played. I played out in Orange Mound. I still go out there sometime to see if that place still that this place was back in. I'm talking about back in the fifties, man, early sixties. But um, Bob Talley, who I didn't know, and uh, Mr. Ava before I came, I was going to Clun Night School. I hadn't made it to. Manassas yet and I was playing these little Jew junk grease spots where Rufus was singing he had a band called the Bearcats so uh, as things developed and in time Bob Talley who I never knew because there were so many bands from off of Bill, Bill Street I hadn't got to Bill Street yet I was just in my neighborhood, North Memphis, New Chicago. But uh, 
Rufus got me through my mother. He came to the house and asked my mother. I don't know who has shared my name with Rufus because I was playing with, uh, well, Isaac Hayes and I, we had a little combo, and we used to play together. So what happened is uh, Rufus come got me to cut his first record. So I, I did the record. When I got to Manassas, which was my ninth year, I was a junior. Well, Mr. Ava was teaching band. I always wanted to be in the band. I wanted to learn how to play drums. So uh, there was a band teacher there named Mr. Anza Horns. He was leaving the year that I came to Manassas. And that's how I got to know Mr. Emerson Abel. And Mr. Abel put me in his band at uh, my junior year. I mean, my freshman year. And he put me in the band in my junior year where I played in the Rhythm Bummers there, this high school band, and I participated in all those different engagements. And... Uh, I didn't know Mr. Abel was uh, looking after me. And the day that I went to Satellite Records, that's when Mr. Abel took very in interest in into me and what I was doing. All I was doing was playing, you know. I love music, come from my mother. I was learning from all of the great jazz musicians I knew from my parents, my uncles, aunties, Sarah Vaughn. So, you know, Miss David was the cause of everything started with my life. And when he found out that I was playing in nightclubs, Miss David didn't know I was playing in nightclubs. But his colleagues, all of his the musicians he was working on, they were school teachers, band teachers from other schools and they had this band which Mr. Hansa Hans had put together and that's how things got started and Mr. Ava found out that he like I said he took interest in me and he started looking out after my future because I was too young I didn't know anything you know uh, but I had something that I didn't know I had and other musicians was listening the older ones, and they were enticing me and speaking well of me, and they were saying, hey, you got something. So that's how it all started until um, I got the chance to go to Satellite Records at Chip's Moment, and Chip's Moment put me in the uh, rhythm band in Satellite, which was the Marquis. You mentioned a name that I want to ask you about really quickly, um, and the name is Bob Talley. And the reason is because uh, my dad was a blues musician, and in the 70s and 80s, he played guitar in Bob Talley's band. And I actually oh, grew up around him and even jammed with him once on drums when I was like eight years old. So, oh, really? yeah, for real. And so I just wanted to ask you about, you know, your time playing with Bob. Well, uh, 
I was being moved around so much, being young as I was. I was getting a whole lot of, um, I guess you could say, credit. You know, I was being enticed by a lot of good people that knew music. And some of them had seen me play with various older bands, being as young as I was. Some kind of way, uh, Bob Talley took me, and he was playing at a, a club called the Hi-Hat Club. It was out on on 3rd Street then, off of uh, McLemore. And the guys that was in that band was Alfred Rudd, Wilbur Steinberg, and Bob Talley. Back in those days, they didn't have a guitar player. We, it was just bass, drums, horn, piano. And I worked at this club with the, the lady that owned it. Her name was Miss Betty. And when I was uh, accepted, Bob took me. Well, Bob started training me how to play because I couldn't play with sticks. Had to play with brushes because the hi-hat club was semi-like. Uh, I used to watch a TV show called Arthur Murray long time back. And Arthur Murray and her husband used to always would do the first dance before their audience that's in the club. And I used to watch this. And when I started playing with Bob, Miss Betty and her husband was the same way. And seeing that, I played, you know, we played stuff like mambo, rhythm, calypso, no blues. Alfred Rudd sung some blues. He sung songs like uh, Kansas City, uh, Misty, Ballads. So they was teaching me all these different fields and all of this music. I had to learn how to play it because they were a Caucasian club and I couldn't play my sticks. If I played my sticks, it would be too loud. <laughs> they didn't want people to be hollering across the table at each other. So they trained me how to play with my brushes. So I had to learn all of these trades to how to play in the club and play for audience. And uh, it was a great experience because I learned a lot. And Bob Taylor was very interested in me, and he was the one who got me on that first session. A lot of people don't know he played on that session too, Rufus. He played trumpet on it. I've heard musicians say, they thought it might have been Wayne Jackson, but it was Bob Talley because I remember when we cut that record on Rufus, uh, Chip's moment had Bob Talley to turn to the wall because the trumpet was overpowering the two horns, which was uh, Booger T. Jones before he was famous uh, Green Onions. He played baritone sax. On that particular song, that was the first record on Rufus and Carlin. I didn't know Bob Talley played horn. I only knew him as a you know piano player. He's a trumpet player. He played trumpet. 
<laughs> Something you've touched on a couple of times already is, I mean, you are, of course, known as the backbeat of high rhythm, but you actually did a lot of work for Stacks also with Rufus and Carla and William Bell and other folks. That was early. Uh, that was that satellite. It wasn't Stacks then. Sure, sure. I, I was in... That was in 1958. Uh, well, it started with Rufus and Carla. And Chips, uh, well, he liked what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I just played, you know, following records. That's where I got my ideas, jazz. I was always told to be a great drummer, a good drummer. You had to spend time. Sometime hang with your friends, but... You had to always, if you wanted to be good, you want to be perfect, you have to spend time studying rhythms and learning and listening. That's what I was doing. And uh, it turned out that Chips liked the track that I cut. And he called me back for William Bell, Don't Miss Your Water, to the well run dry. And that went over, and then Carla had a song called G Wiz. So I was called back to cut that. Those was the first three major records before uh, things got off the ground uh, that I recorded. And they had another artist over there, uh, Prince Connolly. I cut him. He had a record called I'm Going Home. So that's where the career started, the satellite. And then uh, the Mad Lads came on the scene. I cut them, shop around. Everything I was cutting, it looked like, you know, it was hidden. The company was growing. But, you know, I didn't know that much about Billboard magazine, Cashbox, and all that stuff. I was just happy I was cutting records. And my mother was proud of me. You know, she was happy. And... That's where it all began, man, you know, and then they changed the label to Stacks. At what point did you start working for Willie Mitchell and High Records? I started working for Willie in 1968. I was first playing with Gene Bolex Miller. I was playing on Bill Street at the Flamingo Room, which was the club owner, Mr. Clifford Miller. And Gene Bolex Miller had a great band. And uh, Al Jackson was playing there before I started. I knew of Al, but I had never met him because my beginning was in North Memphis over the Curvis Tropicana. I played over there until I graduated. But uh, when, I, when I made it to Bill Street, I was playing with Gene Bolex Miller. And... He had such great uh, musicians. Spencer Wiggins was a uh, lead vocalist there. Uh, there was Andrew Love, uh, Richard Shine played uh, keyboard. Uh, Claude played drums. He came behind Al Jackson. Al Jackson was first. And there was Cleve Shields, who they called Frog. He played bass. And Bolex played trumpet. And it was a great time, man. You know, 
I enjoyed everywhere I played perform because people were so beautiful. They were so friendly, and they was into the music. You couldn't get nothing bad past the public man because they was buying records, and they were listening, and they wanted to hear what they bought. A lot of time when people would come to those clubs, they would request them songs. We had to learn them. That's really why I know so much of what I know. And back during that time, bands was rehearsing seriously. It was serious business. And we don't have that today. You know, uh, you have to, like the OJ said, get the people what they want. One of the biggest, uh, both singles and albums that you recorded for High Records was the Al Green album, Let's Stay Together. Uh, I was just hoping you could just tell tell me a little bit about what you remember about those sessions and working with uh, working with Al Green. Well, you know, it was an amazing thing about Al. Uh, when he came to us, we had a... We hadn't found Al when we started recording. Uh, Willie just took some cover songs. Uh, we didn't know him that well. We, you know, I, I, I only knew one song that was Back Up the Train. I knew that song, but I never met him. And it was played a lot on WLOK and WDIA. I never thought I would have ever met this man or, or even record with him, but it, it did happen. And we met him in uh, Waco, Texas. We had just come off tour, and uh, we had been in California. We had filmed uh, Midnight Special. Uh, we filmed Don Low Collins' show. We did, uh, uh, I can't remember, but we did that with Ike and Tina Turner. And we played American Bandstand. And we did Joey Bishop show. And we had come off the tour to go to Fort Worth. And we had an accident. And uh, they didn't think that we would make it, but we did. Uh, Willie Mitchell's brother, Jane, went through the windshield on the first time. Had 17 stitches. Uh sold in his head. Uh, Don Bryan broke his nose. Willie broke his ankle. The rest of us, Teeny, J.P., Leroy and myself and Charles, we weren't seriously hurt. But we made that gig. The doctor didn't want us. They called and said somebody had put out that we was killed, but we, we wasn't killed. But the doctor didn't want us to play told us not, but we played. We went on and we made the gig and we played. And Al Green just happened to be there. Just think if you hadn't made it. <laughs> yeah, well, we never found Al. <laughs> and what happened, uh, Al come up to the bandstand and asked Willie, could he sing a song? He said, I'm Al Green. Willie Mitchell said, I know Al Green. <laughs> You're not Al Green. We hadn't heard of him so long. We knew the record, and we didn't know. Him. And Al looked like, you know, he's he looked like a bomb man. You know, <laughs> the cats used to wear a process, 
and his hat was standing up on his head. This ring around Willie didn't recognize him. So, uh, you know, uh, we took a break, and Willie had the club owner to come in the dressing room. So he asked him, and he said, yeah. He said, that's Al Green. So Teeny, Leroy's brother, the brothers, he talked Willie into uh, to bring Al to Memphis. Well, we already had, we had Seal Johnson, we had Otis Clay, we had Ann Peoples, we had O.B. Wright. These was acts already hot. So, but Willie was looking for something else. I had no idea what he was looking for. Nobody did. But uh, we had these artists, and then we had a, a couple of outside artists that we had made, Denise DeSales, Detroit Embers, top, top-notch people, man, you know. And uh, Tina talked them into, you know, having them to come to Memphis, and he came down. And make a long story short, he come down, and uh, he was ego for a hit record, and... We hadn't got started with him yet, you know, so Willie selected some songs, and we did The Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, Jerry Butler had a record out back called I Stand Accused. All these was cover songs. Didn't make it. So we were trying hard to see what we could find on this guy. One day he walked in the studio with his acoustic guitar, and he sat down, told Willie he had a hit record and was tired of being alone. He started playing it. I knew from the top, the moment I heard it, I heard the feel. I heard the changes, the way he played it. I said, it's gone. I told Leroy, I said, it's a hit, man. And uh, the next five or 10, 15 minutes, we had cut it, man. And it took off, man. That's what opened the door for him. And the rest is history. Everything went gold every time we cut it. Whose decision was it to cut the uh, Bee Gees composition, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? I don't know whether it was Willie or Al. I think Willie made most, most, most of the decisions for what song that they uh, select that may be good for the artist. Uh, I would say Willie Mitchell was, which was, was the one did that song because I had a problem with that song uh, when we was working on that song. Willie had a special detention about how to play that song, what he wanted on it. I had to get inside of his head, and it was difficult what he explained and taught me to do. And uh, I had been laid back for many years, playing, just relaxed. But this particular song, I had to get up on the beat, and the way Willie designed the song for me to play it, the beat, he wanted six, eight-time rhythm, but he wanted 
up like my hand was, he wanted me to make the hi-hat like it was running away, you know. Then I had to lock my mind and to stay relaxed with the left hand. It was difficult for a minute, you know, because it was something new he had just dropped on me. I understood many times. I worked with him so much. He's a master. He's a genius. But this particular song, I don't know, but it came off. But when he told me, he said, how about you make love to your drums? I thought the man was crazy, you know. <laughs> Can't make love to my drum. But this is, a, he's a genius. This is the way he was, you know. I knew him, but uh, I tried to do everything that whatever he heard, and he came off. And uh, I said, well, I can't make love my drum. What you mean, man? He said, no, what I mean, he said, I want you to think when you got your woman in the bed, how soft and tender she is. I thought he was crazy, man, but he kind of sank my, psyched me out. <laughs> he psyched me out, man. And, uh, <laughs> When I know anything, you know, I feel my woman and stuff, but that's personal, you know, but the way he thought and the fear fell right in. And when it fell, man, you know, um, he said, yeah, he said, that's it. So uh, I learned a lot of secrets from him. That was so great about him. I learned a lot of secrets from him that Al Jackson, well, before I came, Al Jackson was played all the early stuff, 2075 and all that stuff. But I remember one thing Willie shared to me, and I didn't know we was going to lose him. And he told me, he said, Howard, he said, I want to share this with you because I may not have a chance to tell you. He said, always was Howard Graham, never Al Jackson. Hmm. I was shocked. He said, not that I'm taking nothing from Al Jackson. He said, Al Jackson is a great drummer. He worked with me. He said, but Al Jackson wasn't a Howard Grimes. He said, you had more rhythm. You had more ideas. The way you played, you had more feels. He said, you could cover up holes. I could hear you when you're coming on a track. He said, Al didn't have that. That's a heck of a compliment. So... Yeah, it is, you know, and I was flattered, man, you know, that he said that, but uh, I had heard it several times before I heard people on the street that saw me playing clubs would say the same thing, but you know, I was taught, I don't brag on myself, that was one of the main situations people, musicians taught me. Never think you're better than nobody else. Cause man, that was drummers was powerhouse in Memphis. I had to find my place. I didn't want to copy nobody's style. There was too many drummers that had this style. And my style came when I got with Floyd Newman. Floyd heard it. I didn't hear it. When Isaac Hayes got in the band at West Memphis Plantation Inn. And I was playing the hi-hat, snare, and foot. Just something I was doing, you know, giving the, the hi-hat a little air every night and then. And 
Floyd was listening. Same way Willie Mitchell. Willie Mitchell used to listen. And he told me that night, he said, you remember what you played? He said, did you know what you just played? I said, no. He said, can you remember that tomorrow? We going to put that down, studio. I said, I don't know. So Isaac Hayes and myself, we wrote a song called Frog Stump. And I used that beat on it. And that's my style of playing. I've been playing for now 50 years. Someone else you've worked with that I'm a big fan of is O.V. Wright. And I'm curious yes. what it was like uh, recording with him, but also wanted to ask why you think maybe he never broke as big as someone like an Al Green. You know, O.V. Wright always was my favorite. Uh, I knew O.V. Wright uh, back when he was singing with the... Uh, uh, Sunset Travelers. Matter of fact, we recorded the Sunset Travelers high rhythm section one year. Never heard the album, though, but we did cut a great album. But O.V., I never uh, had the opportunity to work with O.V. Don Roby used to come from out of Houston, and he's come to the studio, and Will and him would go to lunch and have to... I guess they were making plans then. What happened, they leased O.V. Wright to Willie because uh, I don't think Don was comfortable to what they were doing there in Houston, and he wanted to try with a new sound. And we were so hot because we was putting everybody in the charts. And Willie Mitchell, he loved O.V. He always knew about O.V. And... Uh, O.V. was a friendly guy. He should have been a comedian because he always keep you laughing. You know, he's just a great, great guy, you know. But I don't get into his personal business or the side of his. But he, he, that's, he had another example of things that was happening. And we was all curious about it. I don't know how long he had been doing it. Had been involved in he wasn't an alcoholic. So uh, I remember O.V. was so great. It didn't take him long to sing a song because he had that church feeling. It was in the voice. It was in him. And he's one of the, man, O.V. was one of the nicest guys that you could have ever wanted to meet, man. And everybody loved him. And Earl Randall wrote this song, which was my first hit, eight, eight Men and Four Women. And the day there we cut that record, OV started, hits started coming everywhere. I don't know was it this personal relationship he had with uh, this sick, this problem he had. Uh, drug addiction, you know. Um, we always heard that he hung around a lot of guys that he knew uh, was kind of supplying him with stuff. And that was long before he came to us. So I wouldn't say that it wasn't that he was. Willie Mitchell said if he had to live, he'd have been the greatest singer in the world. 
which I believe said it too. So uh, I looked at everybody I recall it was great. You know, I can't say it's just Al Green. I played behind some great artists, man. Great artists. I'm talking about <laughs> million sellers, Grammy Awards. So, you know, that's what I would say about him. Years later, Don Bryant uh, redid one of O.V.'s song, Nickel and a Nail. Did, you played on that as well, didn't you? Yes, I played on that. What was it like revamping that song after so many years? <laughs> you know, man, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be frank with you. Once I cut a song, it messed me up when somebody else wanted to do it. Because <laughs> I don't have nothing else in my head. I even gave everything to that artist. And for him to come back with that song, I'm trying to figure out, well, what can I play? How can I turn it around? Because that's what the secret, the secret is about. <laughs> when you cover an artist's song, I was trained by Chip's Moment and all these great engineers I worked with. I was trained that when you take a cover song, the drummer, his job is... He's got to find a way to play the song like he would play it, not fall for the artist that played it. That's what messed up a lot of drummers. He played like he owned the song. They taught me how to do that. And it was trouble for, for a minute for me. But the more I learned from Chips, and then I got to Willie, and it was kind of confusing to me if somebody would come up. You know, it was like, like I said, it was never really nothing left once I done cut it on an artist and then somebody else come up and covered it. Uh, I, I was kind of confused. You know, I had to think a while and said, so beats would run through my head. I'm trying to say, well, maybe this beat will work with that. But I was saying to myself, I don't think so. Because I gave my best the reason why they had a hit. And I didn't think I could do it a second time. But some kind of way, I thank God it came off. Uh, Seal Johnson did it with Take Me to the River. I cut it uh, on the rim shot with Al Green. And I cut it just straight backbeat. But I took the idea uh, listening at Seal Johnson before he came to us, Seal Johnson had a record out called Different Strokes for Different Folks. I bought that record. It was a new sound. And I was just fascinated over what was happening and the arrangement on it. So when he did come to us and I had opportunity to record him, well, he told Willie he wanted to sing Take Me to the River. It was a little distortion because Al Green didn't want him to sing it. <laughs> but uh, he said, he told, he said, I'm going to sing it. And I, I want to sing it. Al got a little angry, you know, but uh, that's what confused me because I said, well, I was like, what can I do with it with Seal? Al got the hit. So, <laughs> but he got a hit behind it. I thought about 
different strokes from different folks. I thought about the way he played and stuff. I just went that away, but it come off. Well, this is this is going to jump ahead a little bit, but how long have you been playing with Scott Bobar and the Bokeys? Scott and I was talking about that. I, I said 10 years. He said maybe a little more. I'd say about 11 years. See, after uh, High Records changed over, you know, in 1977, they sold out. And they didn't keep me. I thought they was going to keep me. They didn't keep me. Uh, and uh, I was a little disappointed. I was hurt. But I remember hearing God said to me, he saying, one hit going to come out of here. Hadn't been one. And I left it like that, you know. And I didn't want to play with no other band. I don't want to play with nobody, you know, because guys ain't for real. They shuck and jive too much. And I wasn't trained by the teachers I come out of. We were strict business. We rehearsal. We played for the public. We did our thing. We got less money for what we did, but we did that. We did the work. We did our job, and that's the way I was trained. And hubby Willie's uh, grandson came to my house one day, told me that Scott was looking for a drummer. I knew Willie Hall was playing with him as a Hayes drummer. I knew he was playing for him. But they was having a little difficult problems with what I was told. And I'm a type of drummer. I don't step on nobody's toes, man. I give you opportunity. You know, I ain't going to go and say, hey, man, this and that. I wasn't taught that. I don't do that. I wait. God told me you wait. Waiting is the best thing because when you wait, then you have the opportunity to what the gift that God had gave you and your talent because you've been trained by the best. And I was trained by the best, the greatest teachers. I came up from a 12-year-old kid, and I worked hard. I just wasn't compensated for it. But that was okay, too. But uh, as far as I was concerned, man, uh, I didn't know whether Scott would accept me. I had met Scott once. I had played at Stax one night, and he gave me a card. But Herbie come back and told me, you know, uh, the band had almost broke up to what uh, Mark uh, Mark had told me, trumpet player. And I, I happened to come over here to talk to him. God sent me over here to talk to Scott. And he told me, he said, don't lie to him. Tell him the truth. Tell him your history. Tell him so he'll know that you're real. You're forbidden. So I sit down with him, and I talked to him, and I told him. And just so how Mark was in the control room, I mean in the uh, music room where I'm at now, and he come to him and he stopped. Well, I had been working with Mark with Ann Peoples some time back. And he said, hey, man, he said, uh, I heard you was coming with us. He said, is that true? I said, well, I hope so. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm for away. He said, well, man, if, if, if you're going to play with it, he said, I'm going to stay. So he didn't leave. 
and the band come back when I came with them. And that's when everything changed and turned, and we got our first break with Sidney Lauper, who I had never met. I heard the record. Girls like to have a lot of fun or something like that. <laughs> but she was great. She was a great lady to work with. Uh, everything changed, yeah, from John Namath, Sidney Lauper, Deke Dickinson. I was... It was a new career, man, you know, playing with this type of music. It freed me from what I had been playing so long, nightclubs, blues, all that sessions and cut. And, you know, I needed a change. So the change came here, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful because I've been able to venture out now for a lot of new ideas, new beats, new rhythms. They all inside of me, man. So uh, change gonna come, like Sam Cooke said, man. What made you decide to write a book? I really didn't decide to, man. Uh, I had in mind back in my younger days when I was ready. Uh, it never come around, you know. Uh, I was getting all this information. And I wanted so badly to, I didn't know anybody to write a book from. I didn't know anybody to do anything. And Preston Lauterbach and Red Kelly uh, came to Memphis. They came to Memphis for to put up a gravestone for O.V. Wright. They went out to visit Ovi Wright's grave and they couldn't find it. And as great a song uh, artist as he was, they didn't like that. They thought that he should have something that people, for all of the great songs and, and the gospel that he sung. So it started from them. And they talked to me about it. A lot of people don't even know today. Morgan Freeman had Ground Zero. And he offered, he opened his club uh, for us to put that engagement on. So we brought in Otis Clay. Uh, I think Don Bryan was on that, the high rhythm section. And it, it was great, man. You know, the people come out and support it. And I didn't have no idea, man, but Preston Lauterbach kept coming back. And we'd go over to the seafood place on uh, Cooper, which was next door to the Memphis Drum Shop. We'd go there and eat seafood and drink a couple of beers or something. And he was always asking me questions. And, you know, I shared things with him. Uh, Mr. Aber had called and told me uh, to help him because I had never talked to nobody. Nobody. They didn't ever want me to talk to nobody. He was teaching me all this. And I was wondering why. So uh, when he told me to talk to my band teacher and then Mr. Aber called me, then I went for it. So uh, I took him to all the places in Memphis. That used to be told him the stories. 
I gave him everything, man, you know, and uh, I guess a year later, a couple of years later, like he normally always come back and we kick it. And he hit me one day. He said, uh, how would you all write a book? I said, man, I can't write no book. Who's going to be interested in me? I say, man, ain't nobody interested. I play drums, man, nobody interested in hear what I got to say. He said, no. He said, we're going to write a book. So every time he'd come here, we'd go to lunch and we'd talk for hours. I, what he asked me, I shared. I didn't know that's the way you do it. You know, he was taping and stuff. And I guess a couple of years later, we, we went about three, four years. Locations, places I showed him. On Beale Street, told him. Took him to certain musicians that were still around. He met. So, uh, when I know anything, man, he had to wrote the book. He asked me one day, he said, you ever got a name for the book? I said, no. Then I remember one day what Willie Mitchell said in the studio, he told me. He said, you're a timekeeper. He said, you keeps everybody in order. And it stuck with me. And it come back up when we had this conversation about naming the book after the book was written. And uh, that's how the name came, uh, Timekeeper. You write at the end of the book about the Memphis music scene not being the same as it used to be. And I'm kind of curious what you think is missing or what's holding back Memphis musicians from breaking through the way they did in your era. Well, uh, when I was coming up in the early days, uh, Musicians, they worked together. They were very sincere about what they did, like I said earlier. They did too much uh, chart reading. Chart reading hadn't, hadn't came out yet. Everything was worked up from the head. Bolegs being a band leader, he always had riffs. They called them riffs. So he could set a riff. Andrew Love would pick it up. Then Floyd Newman would pick it up. That's the way they did. And a whole lot of material and stuff came from the head. Uh, when chart writing started, he they started reading. They were calling back during the time the head, the head sessions and things, working in clubs. They would call uh, chords, B flat, F sharp, or you take G major. I didn't, I didn't, Al Jackson was up. I hadn't learned all of that yet. I was learning it, hearing what they were saying. Then he moved from that to charts. They started writing charts because as time came down, WDIA used to have what you call the Good Rear Review and Starlight Review. And I had a chance to play with both of those. 
uh, two different bands, Ben Branch Band and Gene Bolek's band. But Mr. Owens, Mr. Andre Horn had put a big band together like Lawrence Welk's band, which was band teachers. And Mr. Abel got me in the band because I was playing in the Rhythm Bombers band in Manassas, and we wasn't playing uh, march music and all that. Mr. Abel was writing charts. We were playing Cannonball Alley. Ray Charles, we was playing jazz. Mr. Abel, that's where he was, you know. Dizzy Gillespie and all them guys. Uh, Tuxedo Johnson and all that stuff. We was playing that, so. The musician was calling charts. They started writing charts. They calling charts. And then it went from that to, uh, like I said, uh, uh, they started calling numbers. And that's where it led to, man. You know, here in Memphis, I can't say about other musicians, but the horn sections and rhythm sections, that's what all of the guys was about here that I learned in the early days, you know. Uh, they knew the stuff, I guess, being band teachers, man, you know, they knew the chords. They knew, I just, you see, when they called it out, C minor, man, you know, uh, uh, let me hear your SF sharp. You know, I, that's what I, I hear. So, but I know when we played it, they played it. Sounds great to me. So, you know, that's how I learned, picked up on. So you think there was a greater level of professionalism? That's the, that's the difference. Greater musicians because everybody's head was in tune and uh, everybody was sharp. You know, uh, Andrew Love and Wayne Jackson, when the Memphis sound really, the new sound came. Andrew and Love, Andrew Love and Wayne Jackson was the two that created, where it sounded like four horns. They used to work up. Riffs, because uh, well, Bow Legs and uh, Andrew could do it too, and they only had two horns, you know. But they could they could put harmony together to sound like four horns. Thank you so much for taking the time today and joining me. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, good talking to you. You know, that's the show. Thanks for listening. Once again, this conversation with Howard Grimes originally aired on the Back to the Light podcast, which can be found at backtothelight.net and everywhere podcasts are distributed. Thank you to WYXR. Until next time, take care, y'all.